if it just happens that somebody like you know sold their punk for like one ETH instead of a hundred ETH um, in this block, should like that ninety nine ETH arbitrage go to like you know you as a validator just because you happen to be in that slot, or should it be distributed like more broad? What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Today is February 27th, and today we have a great interview lined up with Tim Bako, a uh, longtime contributor to the Ethereum protocol, and he leads the ACD calls for Ethereum. And of course, we discuss all things Ethereum. But before we get into the interview, we're joined by BlockWorks research analyst Zero X Pibbles and Ren for a, a little segment of Hot Seat Cool Throne to discuss the latest market happenings. I'll kick it over to you, Pibbles, for, for your hot seat or cool throne. Yeah, so I've got a cool throne for FPIS, which is Frax's CPI-pegged stablecoin and governance token is FPIS. Uh, they just launched staking, which is VFPIS, on February 20th, and they've already locked down 35% of the circulating supply for an average lock time of two years. Right now, the APY is like 200% pay down FPIS tokens. So um, we're just seeing like a, a pretty large token sink here. And you have FPIS sitting at literally a $40 million market cap versus fractures at $800 million. So uh, this is a super interesting one to watch because you've got FPI sitting at like a $87 million market cap and that's the CPI pegged stablecoin. And they've been farming profits. I think they have like 5 million in profits from the past year. So they're about to launch liquidity incentives, governance, and all that good stuff. So probably a flywheel about to happen. Yeah, it's definitely a good flag. What is the actual mechanism that keeps uh, FPI pegged to inflation? Because I know there's that Chainlink Oracle that it uses that takes on uh, like U.S. inflation, uh, but how does the the actual stablecoin stay pegged to uh, the Oracle price? So it does it gradually, like basically every 30 days, they add a new CPI reading and then the AMOs will like gradually adjust the price and they have a surplus of collateral to take care of that. So um, it, it's been pretty much up only since it started last May. But, um, you know, as inflation starts to shrink some, then you're going to see a lot more surplus in the collateral, which is just more profits. Okay, so does it take the AMO profits in order to uh, increase that peg in line with inflation? So then more profits will be able to go to FPIS stakers as the inflation rate comes down. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's, that's how I understand it right now. So it's really important that they keep at least 100% collateral in case inflation starts going up because then they would just have to mint a bunch of the governance token and dump that. So that wouldn't be super cool. Is there sort of like a long-term average inflation that FPIS is able to support? Say like if inflation is 2% annualized, the Fed's magic number, would FPIS be able to support that over time and like into perpetuity? Or is that number like zero? based on like fax profits so i guess it just depends on what on-chain yields are right now like they have like 80 million of protocol and liquidity and they just yeeted that into convex so they're getting convex curve and frac shares so hopefully um, on-chain yields can stay good enough for them or else it's going to be a bad day for fpis holders right yeah because i guess like fpis is ultimately the backstop to that peg so 
worst case scenario, you end up minting and dumping FPIS. Uh, but yeah, that's that's like a seems like the more fragile edge of some of the Frax products. But this is this is definitely another interesting one. Yeah, I think that's why they launched a separate governance token for it, so it wouldn't mess with Frax shares at all, because this is pretty experimental stuff. Yeah, Sam, who you got in the uh, hot seat cool throne this week? All right, mine's like the most easy one of the week. Base Coinbase's L2 on the OP stack. Uh, that will, in theory, be interoperable with other OP chains over time with with the same security guarantees as Ethereum once fault proofs go live. Um, people think they're going to be monetizing this by extracting MEV or taking the, the delta between um, L2 fees that are generated and L1 gas consumption. I, I don't think that's really correct because they said in their blog post that they won't be extracting MEV until the sequencer uh, job function is actually properly decentralized. And then if you look at any other L2, like Optimism or Arbitrum today, the fees that they actually get, that's the delta between uh, the, the L2 gas fees paid and the L1 settlement cost is, is pretty m marginal. So I think really the way that they're going to monetize this and to kind of like confirm this thesis of mine i hopped on the coinbase app actually for the first time in a while and they have this little web 3 uh i guess uh toggle at the bottom right and you can actually interact with like lido you can use ave you can use uh one inch you can use quick swap like all these different dApps that we use like pretty often on chain you can use the coinbase's apps user interface to interact with these apps and i'm sure they're taking a pretty big fee uh, from the users interacting with that. I haven't actually used it myself, so can't confirm that. But I could see a world where they're kind of like the UI to onboard people on chain without even knowing it and giving people exposure to all these different dApps that are on Base's ecosystem. So I think that's actually how they'll how they'll monetize it um, over the long term. So I think the main takeaway here is it's bullish on-chain adoption, it's bullish OP, it's bullish Coinbase uh, to fight the regulatory battle from a centralized sequencer perspective. It's bullish coin stock and more than anything, Thing. it's it's hyper bullish eth um so super exciting announcement something we're all watching super cl closely and i know everyone's been reading everything about it on twitter so i guess i'm curious uh first if you guys have any thoughts on this that you want to share but then also it kind of feels like another narrative forming is that the cosmos app thesis has kind of graduated onto ethereum l2 so i'm curious if you guys have any thoughts there yeah, no surprise you'd bring that last point up um but i think it's really exciting and I feel kind of dumb for not seeing this coming a long time ago, right? Like Binance has been experimenting with L1s for a while now. You know, they had Binance Smart Chain, BNB Chain. Uh, we've kind of seen like the evolution of that. And we've also seen like Binance be able to profit from this and, and really create like a, a vibrant ecosystem that then like, you know, they're venture investing in uh, and it kind of spins its own flywheel. And it's pretty cool to see Coinbase doing this on Ethereum though, because I think, you know, someone tweeted today, like BASE stands for... Uh, building and scaling Ethereum. I'm like, okay, that's pretty sick. Uh, and it just kind of gives credence to, you know, t today Ethereum is the TVL hub. Um, that's where the attention is. It's where the usage is. It's where the innovation has been happening. Um, but tomorrow, you know, you never really know what that will look like. Um, but for like every, every day kind of ticks through, we see that the uh, roll-up centric roadmap that Ethereum is building uh, continues to really be the most likely outcome. Um, you know, I don't know if the Cosmos is dead yet. I think that's probably a bit of a reach uh, this early and we'll have to see, you know, like what actually gets built on on base and how uh, users drive adoption uh, to that platform. But definitely bullish the OP stack. It's a huge like win for the credence of what they're doing. 
Um, you know, we saw, see Synapse building over there as well. So there could easily be some synapse, uh, synergy between those two protocols and really just kind of excited to see like this modularity continue to get built out. But I, I agree, like this is huge for Coinbase. Um, and it's probably huge for onboarding users into crypto as a whole. I'll take some, uh, some concerns about base with how optimism took off really because they were just shoveling token incentives at people to build over there. I'm curious how Coinbase is going to actually, you know, bring people over there to build apps. And then also, how are you going to get these people like your average Joe to go on there? Like, look, now I can buy, you know, the, the fringe convex stuff that like they have no interest in buying in the first place. So it could end up just like Coinbase NFT potentially hope not, but it could. And then on the, uh, the modular rollups thesis, you've also got Unidex who is probably going to announce this week that they're launching an optimistic rollup. And then there's another one called bite Masons. Their token is oath. They're also planning to launch a rollup. And this is pretty bullish for like any sort of EVM bridge, including Synapse, Stargate, et cetera. I think the counter argument there is base is saying, hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna have a token, so we're not gonna be able to throw incentives at you. What we're gonna be able to throw at you is users. You know, we're the most used platform. We're gonna start channeling energy into our Coinbase wallet and um, that's how we're gonna onboard people. And if you wanna build an app that our users can use, put it on base. So I think that's how they're going to kind of approach that uh, situation. But you're right, like not having a war chest of token incentives will definitely be something that they've talked about and have to have a game plan for how they're going to overcome that. I agree on like migrating the liquidity over. And also another thing I think about is that base, I feel like increases the vector for permissionless innovation, right? If you are a DeFi protocol that's historically been very scared of trying to do something with like either like US entities or US users, right? Like doing that on base would seem like this sort of more regulated way to do so. And also another thing that base can provide is sort of like KYC aspect, right? Obviously the chain itself is decentralized, but I wouldn't be very surprised if Coinbase launches like decentralized identity NFTs to allow DeFi protocols to sort of run regulated investment platforms where you can only provide access to say accredited investors or qualified purchases, right? Like if you are going to launch a protocol like that on like the entire ecosystem of blockchain networks, chances are you're going to want to launch it on base just to either A, get that institutional branding or B, actually get access to that US user base, right? And I think another thing from the monetization perspective that Sam mentioned that going into the Coinbase app, right? He can sort of abstract away all of like the DEX or like the DeFi protocol front ends. People are very lazy, right? Like there's a reason when, when MetaMask swaps first came out, my first reaction was there's no way people are paying 0.875% to consensus just to do a swap through the MetaMask UI. But today, MetaMask swaps has done 25 billion in volume and consensus has just gotten 200 million in free money just from people being super lazy, which like always blows my mind, right? I can't wait to see like the next boom market and how much consensus makes. They're probably going to make like $1 billion a year just from doing nothing, just with MetaMask Soft. So yeah, I'm quite bullish on base. And actually on this note, um, Tree of Alpha just put out a news article or a news alert that says Robinhood gets SEC subpoena over crypto listings. And I think all of the regulatory actions in the past, say three months, have been pretty bullish Coinbase, whether that's the crack in staking, BUSD, 
or this uh, Robin Hood Safina, right? Like Coinbase seems to be the only one with enough firepower to fight the SEC and probably the only ones with like a good enough like financial standing or regulatory like standing to fight the SEC and everyone else is just going to get pummeled into the ground. And I think a lot of people on the team agree that like base is the regulatory hedge too, right? Like if everything goes to the ground, uh, Gary Gensler wants to burn like Coinbase down, they still have base the network. And that can be, for example, like the app store of like DeFi protocols for institutions or something like that. Yeah, strong agree with everything you said there, Ren. And it just blows my mind every single week how quickly narratives flop in crypto. Like if you would have asked me or anyone else in crypto two, three weeks ago before this announcement, if you're more bullish on Arbitrum or Optimism, I think nine out of 10 people would have said Arbitrum. But you ask people today, I think it's completely the other way around. Uh, so pretty wild and kind of sobering to always think about that. But one other thing I'll leave the, the listeners with is there's a commemorative MF- NFT that you can mint for free, uh, which I feel like it's an absolute Hail Mary play. There's already almost been 400,000 minted as of Monday, February 27th. But I feel like it's a good idea to to mint that just in case in the future it leads to some lucrative airdrop or something of some sorts. But uh, Ren, on that note, I know you got a, a, a hot seat for this week, so I'll kick it over to you. Yeah, perfect timing on the note of the narrative shifting from Arbitrum to Optimism. Arbitrum had a slight PR disaster, so to say, in the past over the weekend. So as a lot of you know, Arbitrum runs a centralized sequencer, right? It's not decentralized at all. It's just off-chain labs. They have a private mempool and transactions aren't made public until they are mined in a block, which means that if you're an ME researcher looking for opportunities, you really want to connect to the sequencer to know what transactions is processing so that you can put in your next transaction to capture any arbitrage opportunity, right? And so what the centralized sequencer relay does is that it sends out these transactions to a random connection that's connected to it. And so basically what's happened is that you get searches which spam the relay with like hundreds of thousands of connection requests just so they have a higher chance of being the one that receives the transaction that uh, went through the sequencer, right? Um, and so basically what happens is off-chain labs went, okay, this isn't good for us. We're paying like a lot of fees and trying to maintain these like c- connection requests to the relay. And one of the tech leads for Arbitrum proposed the idea for these searchers to mine a nonce. And then from there, depending on the nonce that you mine, your score must be greater than or equal to a target specified or else the connection will be refused. So that's sort of like a gating mechanism for connecting to the relay. And for a lot of the people, basically, this doesn't make sense, right? You don't want to give anyone a latency advantage over anyone else. But while moving the work off the Arbitrum server, you've created some like other really random incentive mechanism for other people to basically put a lot of effort into mining nonsense. And there's probably like a lot of better ways to do this, I think. Yeah, I mean, when we get to into like, you know, how do we make L2s more efficient? How do we make them more decentralized? This is definitely like the area of cutting edge research, in my opinion. And I wish we had Westy on this week to bless us with some some knowledge around uh, what the current landscape of that research looks like. But, you know, to me, like these are just going to be problems that continue to arise, right? Like if we look at L2s today, they are not fully baked out. They are not fully decentralized. Most of like, if you look at, uh, you know, Optimism doesn't have fraud proofs live yet today. So like these are, we have like baby L2s, if you will. And getting to the states where they're 
highly optimized and uh, kind of have their full potential is kind of like Ethereum, right? Like we are still building on unfinished protocols and there's going to be these like uh, hiccups or roadblocks that come up along the way where existing protocols are going to have to like completely reshape the way that they've built uh, because we've discovered a more efficient way to do something. And we're seeing this, we frequently see this on the base layer. Um, and so it's not really surprising to see this on L2s, but uh, you know, it's just like, we see the light at the end of the tunnel with this grand vision of these like L2s that are highly efficient and scalable. Uh, but like getting exactly to that end goal is still yeah, a bit of a road unknown. Yeah, I think the entire Ethereum roadmap is going to change before they figure out how to decentralize sequencers. And then somehow Ethereum just processes all the transactions. Like just the most random shit's going to happen and then L2s are going to be forgotten about. Westy's going to have a heart attack. <laughs> That's honestly a fair take though. And it's I'd be curious to see like in the future how much, you know, because everyone's kind of going for this EVM equivalence and who knows how much of this technical debt that Ethereum is creating that L2s will also have to carry into the future. So I think there's a real argument to be made for like modular rollups such as the Fuel VM or, um, you know, there's a lot of them out there. So that's definitely something to pay attention to going forward. Sam, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but, uh, you know, I know you play really close attention to like the the progress of ZK EVMs and uh, L2s as a whole. And so does Arbitrum have any of the ZK tech on its roadmap or is it like strictly trying to go a different route here? Yeah, from what I've mostly recently read is they're like super open-minded to any kind of tech, but right now they're still focused completely on optimistic rollup designs. And I do know that their next uh, upgrade, I can't remember what it's called, but it's focusing on basically bringing like C++, like Rust, other development languages more from the Web2 space into the Arbitrum ecosystem to onboard more developers. So it's a completely different approach than Optimism's approach in, in trying to be super modular and encouraging people to fork their code. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. But at the same time, like Optimism is more, I feel like, application focused and generalized. And then Arbitrum is really leaning into that DeFi heavy ethos. So I feel like they are going after two different markets, but I just don't know whose strategy is going to win long term. But I know Optimism has some stuff in their docs uh, for Superchain saying that they're willing to use uh, validity proofs or ZK tech for uh, cross uh, chain communication between different OP stack chains. So I imagine Arbitrum sometime down the line will also adopt similar tech. Dan, I know you've got a killer cool throne or hot seat, actually. Sorry, I naturally want to put you in the cool throne for the work you put into this, but uh, hand it over to you right now to, to explain what you uncovered on Friday last week. Yeah, so hot seat, the wormhole exploiter. Uh, if you guys remember from about a year ago, almost to the day, uh, the wormhole, the bridging protocol was hacked and they had 120,000 ETH stolen from them. Uh, so at the time, that was about $300 million. And then if you flash forward to uh, fast forward to the 21st of February this year, um, that's money was actually counter exploited by jump. And so it's pretty interesting to see that how this development went down. So um, the wormhole exploiter had this 120,000 ETH that he was kind of shifting around Ethereum and, you know, plugging into various applications, doing different things. But most recently, he uh, minted a bunch of wrap staked ETH and then opened up two Oasis vaults, um, which is a borrowing platform built on top of MakerDAO. And on the, with these vaults, he was like essentially going lever long uh, 
uh, ETH staking derivatives. So our ETH through Rocket Pool and wrap staked ETH through Lido. Um, and with these two vaults, he opted into automation services that were offered by Oasis. So essentially, a user of the automation services can set uh, certain buy or sell triggers where when the collateral hits a certain price, the protocol will automatically like uh, buy more by taking out a loan against your collateral and kind of like continuing your looping. Uh, so based on certain price action, a user can kind of create a, a more customized vault uh, and it really tailored to their own needs and, and desires of how they want to go lever long a certain asset. And so that's exactly what this wormhole exploiter was doing, taking a massive uh, lever long position on wrap staked ETH. And little did the exploiter know, the automation contract that is used is actually an upgradable proxy contract. And so it kind of makes sense why if I was automating a vault, I would need to give control of my vault to a, a smart contract, right? Like if I want to do something like when a, a certain trigger is hit, then the automation service needs to act on my behalf. And I'm like giving it permission to do that. Uh, so the automation services inherently sign away um, privilege to act on my behalf on my vault. And that would have been fine if it was an immutable contract, but because it was upgradable, the Oasis multi-sig, it's like a four of 12 multi-sig with Oasis team members, has the ability to change the code of the automation service contract. And they kind of did exactly this. So uh, a trigger was hit on February 16th that kind of like alerted, it was a massive, massive buy. It was like, it was like a 12, 12 and a half or so million dollar uh, wrap staked ETH purchase that like was shattered through DeFi, had like a hundred something logs on the transaction. And so White Hats picked this up and it, I actually like searched through Twitter to, uh, after I was like found this whole analysis and uh, this transaction actually got flagged a ton of times, but nobody figured out that it was like the very first step in uh, like uncovering this massive counter exploit. And so these White Hats basically saw this massive transaction and they went, oh shit, this guy is using an automated upgradable contract. Like there is a, a like we can counter exploit them. And so sometime between this, the 16th and the 21st of February, Oasis became aware of the fact that they could essentially deploy this counterattack. Um, and we don't know if like Oasis decide, like was approached with this and they're like, hey, like we're not going to do that. And that's what triggered this court order that is eventually came. Or maybe the Oasis kind of took the approach of, well, if you're going to do this, like we're going to need a court order to kind of like cover ourselves. I have no idea about the, the internal conversations that went on there. Uh, all we do know is five days after they originally found the possibility of this exploit, the high courts of England and Wales came to Oasis, who is H headquartered in uh, in the UK, and said, "Hey, like you have to, you know, take all the necessary action to enable Jump to retrieve these funds." And so, on the 21st, there was an additional signer added to the Oasis multi-sig. Uh, we still do have not confirmed the. Uh, the true owner of this, but in you know, in my personal view, it is of all indication that this was indeed Jump, uh, and so they were added to the Oasis multisig, executed a series of transactions that retrieved the funds, and, and then were essentially kicked off the multisig. Uh, and so, all in all, this additional signer was only live on the Oasis multisig for about an hour and fifty-three minutes, uh, but in that time they were able to execute a transaction that swapped out the automation services contract code and enabled them to essentially uh, open a new vault that is controlled by the multi-sig, transfer the debt and collateral position from the wormhole exploiters vault to this new vault, 
and then they had full control of this collateral and debt. Uh, and so Jump then sent transactions to uh, this additional address. They paid down the debt to the tune of about $80 million and then withdrew the about 200 or so million dollars of collateral. So net net, Jump had to pay $80 million to retrieve about 220. Uh, so they ended up about $140 million better off. Um, and this was like a, a huge fine. So I, I, I don't know, I actually stumbled into this and had no idea this was the case. I was like doing some uh, analysis on wrapped, trans wrapped staked ETH transfers and noticed that like the largest transfer of all time was like, you know, 12 or 36 hours before I was actually searching for it. I was like, oh, that's weird. Like who's just slinging around $200 million of ETH in one transaction? Uh, but it was actually the transfer between uh, the like holder contract and a sender contract. Uh, and so uh, if you, I, we, we published a free report on blockers research that like goes line by line on what happened through these transactions. Uh, and it's pretty hard to like, like verbally walk through, but uh, so sorry if I just kind of like mumbled through that. But if you read the, the free report, which we can link in the show notes, it, again, it just goes line by line of exactly what happened. Um, and it really doesn't get into any of the second order implications, which is kind of the more interesting part, right? Because at the end of the day, um, I'm, I've been seeing like a ton of like, oh, DeFi is dead on my timeline. And in my view, like that is just really not what happened here. Like there was a very specific set of events that needed to occur for this counter exploit to take place. So, you know, first of all, there was a multi-sig controlled by a known set of individuals through the Oasis team. And they were based in a regulatory friendly jurisdiction in the UK. And further to that, they controlled an upgradable contract that the wormhole exploiter opted into using and gave that contract control of its assets. So there's like five things that needed to happen for this, uh, this reverse exploit to be possible. And most importantly, none of this was possible without the permission of the Oasis multisig. So they essentially had to facilitate this from happening and were asked to do so or ordered to do so by a court. So I think this is the first time a court has ever ordered specific on-chain transactions to occur and then they have occurred. But it's like this friendly reminder that, you know, just because if you're, if you're a private company building on blockchain rails, you're not just exempt to the, the like the laws of the world uh, or the laws of the area you live in. Um, even if you are like building a protocol, but again, and, and more importantly here, like Oasis is essentially a private company that offers on-chain services. It is not decentralized. It does not have a token and it has, you know, its governance is the team making decisions. So it's more so like it should be viewed as a private startup than anything else. Um, and it's all the other takeaway here is like, it's not that upgradable contracts are inherently evil. They have a great purpose in DeFi and it's not that multi-sigs are inherently evil either. It's the combination of a multi-sig controlled by a known set of individuals that have the ability to change the code of this upgradable contract. Uh, that is really like this centralization risk here. Uh, and then like the way I view decentralization is like, it's a, it's a spectrum, it's a spectrum. It's not a zero and a one. And it also spans through time. Like this is the end goal we need to build towards and not the place we just begin at when we start. Um, and so, you know, there are ways that this could have been mitigated, but at the end of the day, like this isn't something 
everyday users of DeFi need to be worried about unless they stole like $120,000 or 120,000 ETH from one of the largest and most sophisticated trading firms in the space. Like if that's not you, then you probably have nothing to worry about here. Yeah. Honestly, you killed that, that, uh, analysis, Dan. I thought that was really good. Like even like makes sense verbally. Uh, but I guess it makes sense too. Cause you were pretty much balls deep in that for like 36 hours straight. So had tip to you, but I, I just echo everything you say. Uh, I mean, the, I think it's important to distinguish between MakerDAO and Oasis. Like they're not the same team. They're not the same product. And they're the MakerDAO maxis are going to come out and attack if you don't distinguish between the two. So that's the only other thing I would add. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It was, uh, it was nice to get some, some sleep over the weekend because when I found that, I was like, oh my God, like, I think I like Googled or not Googled Twitter search, like every combination of like jump and exploit. I'm like, surely somebody's found this. Like I was not the first person to stumble into this, but one thing led to another and, and sure enough. And, you know, like there's definitely a, a lot of viewpoints to have, but at the end of the day, like this was pretty based, like jump got 300 mil stole from stolen from them a year later, they still haven't given up and they, they figured out a way to like reverse exploit it and, and take it back. Like that's that's sick. Yeah, I guess if I had to add anything to what uh, both Dan and Sam have said, obviously a lot of us in crypto believe in like the whole decentralized, permissionless sort of like system that we're building. But I've also always felt that as long as we're able to build a better financial system that's better, cheaper, faster, even if a lot of that is centralized, that's a partial win for what we're trying to do already. If we're able to reduce the average fee for seven hundred billion dollars of remittances every year right, from 6% to say 1% or even 0.1%, which I think is definitely possible on a blockchain network, that's a win. If we're able to sort of allow people to exchange money or take out a loan at lower rates in developing countries to build their own like business or start their own farm, that's a win, right? Not everything has to be decentralized. Obviously, like, I feel like the best scenario is that there should always be a decentralized and permissionless option for the 0.1% of people that really want it. Um, but I think, like Dan said, right? we live in a world, we live in a society, there are laws that we have to comply with. Like You can't just go around and stealing money, even though like code is law, quote-unquote. Yeah, I, I agree, though. Like there will, I think there very much so will be that decentralized value that does exist on-chain. Um, but I, don't, I agree, like that doesn't need to be everything, and that shouldn't necessarily be the focus of everything. But um, I'm, I'm excited that people are very dedicated towards building that because it is something that doesn't exist today, and it does have product market fit like people that should be something that people have the ability to opt into based on like your you know your risk preferences and desires so excited to see that you know that's still something that we're building towards but again doesn't need to be everything all right i think that's a good time to call it let's kick it over to the interview with tim Baiko after this ad i cannot recommend enough for you guys to all check out blockworksresearch.com. If you go over to the research tab and toggle free research, you're gonna get access to some of the best free reports in the industry. And if you want to subscribe to Blockworks Research, you can do so using 0x research 10 at checkout in order to receive $250 off. And you can also sign up to our free newsletter if you wanna just get a little taste where we give alpha on governance, degen trade ideas, market commentary, charts of the day, etc. Kind of get you caught up to speed on everything you need to know in the market within five, 10 minutes. Give us a follow at Blockworks Res, Blockworks R-E-S on Twitter. We'll release our new reports during the week. And even if you uh, don't have access to the reports, you're not a paid subscriber, you can still check out the topics we're writing about and get a, a little bit of a brief insight into what uh, the contents of the report is about. If you want to know a little bit more how we think on the data side of things, head over to our Dune public account. We have four dashboards live there for free. The revolution will not be quarterly reported, so definitely check those out and let's kick it over to the interview.
All right, we are joined here by Tim Biko, a prominent uh, contributor to the Ethereum community. Uh, he's kind of built up a solid reputation by leading the the ACD calls, all core devs calls for the Ethereum community. Um, welcome on, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I think it'd be great just because I personally haven't heard that many interviews with you uh, myself. So I would love to just kind of get your backstory on how you got into crypto and and why why you picked kind of the Ethereum community as the the one to stick with. Yeah, of course. Um, so. I first got introduced to crypto through uh, Bitcoin and it was kind of weird. Um, I had a friend who was always uh, into like weird internet things. Um, and at one point, the two things he was into were uh, Bitcoin and the other one was like buying Iraqi dinars off eBay because um, there was like some sanctions things and the, the price like the, the currency had gone down. And his, his view was like, you know, when the U.S. sort of left Iraq, um, the, the price would go back up. But you couldn't like buy them on an FX exchange. You had to like buy physical bills. Um, so he was into both those things at the time. Um, so I, I bought a bit of Bitcoin because it just seemed logistically simpler, um, but like equally weird um, and, and, and sort of got me down the rabbit hole where like I didn't. I, I didn't sort of go all in on Bitcoin right then. I think this was like 2013 or 2014, uh, but sort of knew about it, you know, and, and, and roughly kept track of it. Um, and I think, you know, over the years, I sort of saw like when it, when Ethereum happened and, and the thing that sort of got me uh, really interested in Ethereum is when uh, the DAO launched. Um, so the DAO was like the first big kind of killer app on Ethereum. And the idea was to have a sort of VC fund where the token holders um, would like buy these DAO tokens and like vote on which investments the DAO um, would make. So basically you would send your ETH in, get some DAO tokens, and it would like pool your ETH and you could you know choose which which projects to invest to as, as a DAO. Um, so that sounded really cool. I bought some ETH to invest in the DAO. And then literally, I think two days after um, the DAO got hacked. Um, so somebody found a way to like take all of the ETH out of that smart contract. Um, and, and so that was really kind of what pulled me in really deep into like uh, Ethereum where like uh, it was this very dramatic moment where people were trying to figure out like, okay, you know, can we stop this hacker? And then uh, there was uh, eventually because of how the DAO worked, there was like a time lock with how the funds uh, like to withdraw the funds. So the hackers funds were sort of sitting there for a month. And people decided to like make an upgrade to Ethereum, which would uh, take the hackers' funds away and, and return them back. Um, and 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 so that sort of all happened. And after that, there was this whole Ethereum Classic split. So these people who disagreed with this 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 change uh, sort of started running the original chain again. And then as a user, if you had coins on like on chain, you would have to like split them, send them to two different addresses, so like it would be it would be safe. Um, so that's really kind of got me. Um, as someone with like not a ton of you know blockchain experience beyond like having bought Bitcoin and bought ETH like really down uh, and, and and like interacting with this stuff, um, and after that after the DAO sort of happened and Ethereum Classic happened, I, my view is like I wasn't quite sure if like Ethereum would work in that like if this is a platform for smart contracts and like you build a smart contract on it, but then lose all the money, like, um, it's like, is this like a good product in a way? Um, so I, I was still paying attention, but a bit less. And I think later that year, like about six months after that, you start to see other projects, uh, you know, with like this first round of ICOs come on and they were doing more than just like, um, basically pulling money. So there was, uh, at the time, Gollum wanted to do some like GPU stuff. 
Um, there was this other one, uh, Mellon Port, which was kind of an index fund trying to build on Ethereum. And I think seeing like that there was a bit more diversity in terms of like what people were trying to build sort of got me back in. Um, and then the next year was like, obviously 2017, there was this huge ICO boom. Um, and and I then like as a user of the chain, it was pretty clear that like there was huge demand for the network, uh, but the infrastructure was terrible. Like, you know, the transaction pool would get like clogged for like days and stuff when there was this, these like popular ICOs. It was just really like a painful experience to use the network. Um, and so that's kind of what got me to to want to work on Ethereum. So I I wasn't super confident in any of the specific projects at the time. Um, so I didn't didn't want to like you know, risk it on like any one of those was like working on the protocol itself um, seems like something that would be valuable. Like there's clearly a ton of demands for it. Even if all those ICOs fail, I'm sure, you know, there'll be more like a year from now, there'll be different projects using it. Um, and it, from there, it sort of took me a while to get a, a full-time job in the space. I was a product manager, uh, but I wanted to work on the protocol, which is not a product. So um yeah, took a while to find to find something that was like the, that overlap. Um, but luckily, in, in 2018, Consensus stood up a protocol team and uh, hired me as a product manager as part of that. So I started working um, on their their Ethereum implementation, the basic client. Um, so did that for two two and a half years. Um, and then the protocol is sort of managed through these uh, these these calls, which are open to anybody who's contributing to to Ethereum. And um, they're called the all awkward devs calls. Uh, so I attended those because I was I was working on one of the implementations. Um, they were run by uh, this guy Hudson at the EF. And then in, in 2020 or 2021, uh, Hudson had been doing this for like over five years, wanted to move on, and I sort of stepped in and and took over uh, for him there. Um, and that's what that's what I do today still. So basically, I, I I run these calls where the different contributors to Ethereum come and like talk about you know potential changes to the network, um, technical implementation details, and and all that stuff. Yeah, and that that's a great little background there. And one, one like a, like an interesting point where we left off there is kind of how you know Ethereum governance works as a whole. I feel like to a lot of people, even power users of Ethereum, they still don't fully understand like what that process looks like of like taking an idea uh, and pushing it live to an ep- an upgrade that hits the network. So can you kind of walk us through what that looks like? Yeah, of course. And I think the best way to think about like uh, you know, the the governance process is it's almost like there's two like uh parties or, or or groups and they both need to end up agreeing. So there's the people who write the code, right? Like the, the core devs or software developers. Um, but then there's everybody who runs a node on the network. Um and so when like the whole, you know, what people think of like the whole like governance process is, is basically only the first half of it. So say you come, uh, you want to propose a change to Ethereum. We have templates to do that. They're called Ethereum improvement proposals. You know, you have to like explain what your change is, what it does, uh, write a specification for it, uh, write like a reference implementation, write some test cases and whatnot. So you go, you know, you do that. Um, once you have a specification that's like in, in decent spot, uh, most people will like come on these calls and, and try to get feedback uh, on it from from like client developers. Um, most of the time, there's something wrong with their specification. You know, they've missed a bug. Um, I think this is the thing that's like very different uh, with Ethereum than say writing other software is that the network like can't go down. And um, so like there's a huge amount of scrutiny on the the security side of things. Um, so most of our conversations in these all core devs calls are basically like there's a security issue with this thing. How do we fix it? Um, and so most of the process of like somebody wanting to propose a change is actually like working through those things and, and kind of iterating on that. And then um, 
at some point, uh, you know, we decide we want to like make an upgrade to the network. Um, and there's different like reasons for that. Like, but generally there's at least one proposal, potentially a set of proposals that like we think make sense together. Um, and by we here, I mean, you know, the different teams of like core developers agree makes sense. Um, and there's no like formal vote or anything here. So we use what we call like rough consensus. Um, and the idea is that we, we have like this very open process where anyone can come and make proposals, client teams, you know, over time sort of agree both conceptually to stuff, but then like as they implement it, they're like, what is a set of proposals that like are coherent together that, uh, you know, add value uh, are not so big that like it's impossible to test and, and like, you know, feel confident in, in the quality of. Um, and then they basically pull out a, a, a software release, which says, you know, if you run the software as of this uh, time, the, the rules of the network will change. But this is kind of where, you know, and then, you know, we'll put up the Ethereum Foundation, we usually put up a blog post, like saying like, you know, hey, this is a proposed upgrade. These are like the changes going in and this is when it would happen. Um, but this is sort of where the sort of quote unquote power that, you know, the, the like Ethereum governance has sort of stops because if nobody chose to run this software, then like nothing would happen, right? Um, and and so you need basically all of the validators, but not only them, right? Like even people who run non-validator nodes, you can think of exchanges or, you know, just individuals. You need all of these people, or at least the overwhelming majority of them to also run the software. Um, otherwise the network will like split, right? Like, um, and, and or not upgrade at all. You could imagine the core developers put out an upgrade that nobody wants and, you know, the network just does an upgrade because nobody's running that software. Um, I think this is the part that's like very different from Ethereum than other blockchains, which have stuff like on-chain governance or, you know, like formal votes um, is like, it does require like this, like amorphous group that is like the Ethereum community to then upgrade their software. Um, and what you see in practice is like, you know, most of the time there's an upgrade that's proposed, people actually run it and upgrade the software. And it feels like this continuous process. Um, but I think it's worth like highlighting that this is, this is kind of because I think client developers anticipate that like the community could refuse a change that, you know, they would dislike and client developers would be the one who would have to deal with like the technical fallout of that. Like if the network forks, you know, it's, it's obviously a bunch of technical work uh, that, that they'll be the ones handling. Um, so there's like this proactive, you know, like, uh, this proactive thought of like, okay, what are things that the community will actually want or, or, or like? Um, but you could imagine a case where it's not that, like imagine the client developers decided we're all gonna mint ourselves a million ETH each. Obviously the community would refuse that. Um, and, and so like, you know, that is a case where like the upgrade probably wouldn't go through. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's easy to forget that there is like this two way kind of power dynamic there. And, and we've seen this happen in the past with like Ethereum Classic, for example, even, yeah, and, and I think that's what, that was like a pretty contentious split. Like there was like a pretty strong, you know, community there. And um, with the merge, we saw sort of like a, a micro version of that where like there was, you know, a, a very small contingent of like proof of work miners who, who didn't upgrade and like kept running the proof of work chain. Um, but I think that was the case, you know, say Ethereum Classic was like, I don't know, some sort of like maybe 80-20 split or something like that. The merge was probably sort of a 99 to one type of split. Um, but you could imagine, you know, just a very bad proposal leading to like 99 to one and the other side where like the entire community rejects it. Um, and we also have a bunch of cases actually of EIPs that just 
never made it in to like an upgrade because of like community pushback. Um, so there was one uh, several years ago where like a big multi-sig got locked um, and, and sort of there was a request to unfreeze those funds and a lot of the community was against this. And so even though it was a relatively technical, technically, technically simple change that actually affected some of the core developers, it never made it into an upgrade because of like this anticipated community pushback. Um, there was another change, uh, ProgPow, around like how proof of worked, uh, proof of work worked, um, which would have like favored GPUs over ASICs. And then again, this was something where I think core developers were like quite sympathetic to it, but the community had like a, a strong negative reaction, and the change just never made it into an upgrade. Um, so yeah, that's roughly how it works. You sort of come to consensus on which change to push, but the community always have the like has the last say to like actually run the software. Yeah, that's a great high level overview because I do know it is a little like daunting in a way to like try and figure out how this is actually working like underneath the hood. And a lot of people aren't aware like, oh, you just go to this website and you can kind of participate in the in the conversation. But I guess I'm curious how, what, what methods of communication are the most effective in terms of getting everyone who's running a client on the same page, like to get the merge passed through, like, that's pretty incredible that all these people all around the world running clients, like, decided, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to upgrade at this time. So how does that work? And then also, can you speak to kind of the importance of client diversity? Yeah, of course. Uh, so there's a couple of things to unpack there. And just on the first thing you said, like going to a website and seeing how it happens, uh, the Ethereum.org team has done like a phenomenal job over the past year or two of like documenting all this stuff. And they have a really hard job because they're like documenting things as they're sort of moving and changing. Uh, but they do have a governance page. I think it's like ethereum.org slash governance or something. And it does roughly kind of explain what I just said and links you to all like the places where you can participate. So that would be like the first place I would, I would send people who are just high level interested. When we have, so when we have uh, actual network upgrades, like there's a, di a couple of different communication channels. Um, like the, the one that like people refer to first, like the Ethereum Foundation has a blog. So like blog.ethereum.org and, you know, uh, there'll be a blog post there. But I think beyond that, uh, all of these client teams, right? Like they have communication lines with their users. Like if you're a user of like uh, Besu or Nethermind or Prism or Lighthouse, um, you know, you go to their GitHub, you go to their release page, whatever, like they'll have a release and they'll explain kind of the same things. I'm like, this is the release download for prism for this upgrade and these are the changes that are going in um so that's that's like another place um obviously you know i'll tweet about it personally um and then you know there's a bunch of folks like that'll from the infrastructure side that'll either proactively reach out or like if they have some generic uh you know contact that email sometimes i'll send them an email just to make sure but um yeah you know i think uh it's also maybe like another one that's worth noting is we do have like this uh, R&D Discord server that's, you know, pretty open where people can join. So there's a lot of folks like, I don't know, say from like Infura or Coinbase or Lido, like these these people, they'll just like hang out there to, to monitor things as it's as it's happening. So they, they have noticed sort of before the blog post happens. Um, and then even things like, you know, Week in Ethereum, like in these newsletters, they'll also do like a good job of, of advertising it. Um, Consensus also has done like a good job historically of like promoting this stuff. Um, yeah, so I think there's like diverse diverse channels, um, and you know the the this the sort of quote unquote decision gets made on these public calls that like me and uh, Danny Ryan also runs them. Um, so this is like the main place anyone can go to. There's a YouTube channel, like uh, I think it's uh, Ethereum Protocol. Um, there's transcripts, there's notes. So like if you just want to like know exactly when it happens and see it, then like you can just follow the calls. But then we sort of 
repackage you know, the contents of the call once and, and, and try to put it in a cleaner format for to send over to people. Um, yeah. Oh, and sorry, yeah, you mentioned, sorry, the last bit was client diversity. Um, so this is another kind of can of worms, but um, Ethereum is def different than a lot of other blockchains in that um, it's written as like a specification for which there's several implementations. Um, and if you're not very technical, like this might sound weird, maybe the, the best analogy I found so far is like a web browser. So if you're like a user of the web, uh, you know, I'm using Chrome right now, but you can use Safari, Firefox, Oprah, whatever. Um, all of these web browsers are like different clients, right? Like if I go to riverside.fm on Chrome and you go on Safari, we get served the same website um, because they speak a common protocol, right? Like they make an HTTP request to, to the server, they get, you know, whatever the website like should render. And, and then they have like a, an implementation of how they should render HTML, how they should render, you know, CSS and all those things. Um, but Chrome and Safari can have like different features, right? Like there's a bunch of different customizations and whatnot. Um, and this is basically how Ethereum is structured as well. So there is a specification for the protocol. Um, it's written like mostly in Python, um, but it just says, you know, like this is what an Ethereum block should look like. And when you have a transaction, this is like what a valid and invalid transaction should look like. And it has like all these rules. Or for example, like with the EVM, you know, this is how much it costs to add two numbers together. This is how much it costs to add, uh, to multiply numbers and whatnot. Um, so we have this specification, which is like the thing that we agree to change. And, and you know, that like everybody sort of needs to come to consensus on. But then each of these implementations, so like, uh, you know, we have both consensus layer clients who run the beacon chain and then execution layer clients who run like the EVM. They each have multiple different implementations. Uh, so like on the on the beacon chain, we have Prism, Lighthouse, Teku, Nimbus, Lodestar. On the execution side, we have Geth, Aragon, uh, Besu, and, and, and Nethermind. And all of those you can think of as analogous to web browsers that like, you know, they will follow the protocol rules, but they'll give you different features. They'll optimize for different things. Um, and this is really valuable for Ethereum because it means that a bug in any one of those clients cannot like take down the network, right? Like, um, so, and we've seen this in the past, actually, you know, in 2016, there was this big attack uh, on Ethereum that tried to like crash the network. And at the time there was only two clients, Geth and Parity, and the attacks would like find a bug in one of the clients and like exploit that but because we had the other you know, people could switch over and keep running the chain and vice versa. Um, and, and I think this is like the, basically the, the really important property that if you don't have this, imagine, you know, a world where we just had Geth and nothing else. If there was a bug in Geth that say like, I don't know, minted a million ETH, then the chain sort of can't stop. Like there's no, there's no other like source of truth uh, on the protocol. And, and that's really bad, right? Uh, whereas now, you know, if say there's there's a block where like, you know, get thinks a million ETH should be printed, but like Aragon, Besu and Nimbus all sort of disagree, um, then, you know, it doesn't have to like scar the protocol in that way, right? Like we, we just have like different implementations telling us, oh, actually this is this is wrong. Um, and so there, there is a cost of doing this. Like there's like a complexity cost where like when we implement stuff, we need to like make sure that it doesn't just work in Geth, but it works in Geth and all the other ones. And now since the merge, you know, we have these uh, beacon chain clients as well. So every pairwise combination needs to work. Um, so there's like a higher engineering cost to do that. But what it buys us is like resiliency and like security in that like, you know, if any one of those clients or any one of those pairs doesn't work, um, then, you know, you have like 19 other pairs that you can use um, or, you know, four or five other clients. Um, 
that you know hopefully would not have to bug um, because they're written in different languages by different people. They have different you know testing processes and whatnot. Um, so yeah, that's how sort of that, that I guess that's how Ethereum is structured and like why it's important is just because it gives us this extra degree of security um, where if there's a bug, you know, it's not the entire protocol, but it's like a single client implementation that that has that issue. So when you think about things like, um, you know, liquid staking, how how does that play into client diversity? Because this, I guess, the, you know, the net benefit would be that it brings in more uh, Ethereum into the, like, drives more stake to Ethereum. Um, but then I guess it ultimately matters on how decentralized that validator set is uh, that the liquid staking protocol offers. So how, how do the core devs kind of think about how liquid staking as a whole uh, kind of shifts the security uh, promises and guarantees of the chain? I guess there's like two ways to answer that question. So first is like, what did the human core devs think? But there's also like, how does the Ethereum protocol in a way like anticipate or deal with that? And it might be easier to start with the protocol as like a, a foundation and then, you know, uh, go to like the more human side. Um, but like basically the Ethereum protocol, uh, if you think of it as like just like a, a set of computers, it's like this distributed network of computers that all has to agree every 12 seconds on like what state of the, what is the state of the network. Um, and Obviously, like because it's so distributed, we can't expect like a hundred percent of the computers to agree all of the time. Like we have to be lenient to some degree that like you know some people will be offline. We still have to like chug along and and move forward. And this is a decision that like it's sort of a dis design decision that Ethereum makes that like the most valuable property of the network is what we call liveness, but this basically just means like keep producing blocks. Um, other blockchains will will have designs where like, you know, if not enough people are online, they'll just stop. Um, but Ethereum really values this idea that like, you know, the network should keep moving forward pretty much no matter what. Um, and if everybody's like online all of the time, then it's, it's pretty easy to keep the network uh, moving forward. You know, you just ask everybody, what do you think about the state? If they all agree, you know, move forward in lockstep. Um, and, but that said, like if, if people start being offline, that, that starts to be bad. Um, and the way Ethereum, sort of is designed is that um, there's like an exponential, uh, it's exponentially bad the more people are offline. And that like, you know, we have about 500,000 validators now, I think, give or take. Um, if one of those is, online, is offline, it's really not the end of the world. So the penalty to them should be small. But if, you know, 10%, 20%, 30% go offline, uh, we should kind of scale the penalty because, um, this this means like the network is like struggling much more to come to consensus on on uh, on the state of things, and um, and the flip side of this is it's actually quite nice because it it sort of encourages uh, decentralizations and solo stakers. So for example, if I run you know like a, a node from from my house in Vancouver and I go offline and I'm the only one who go up is offline, I get a much smaller penalty than if like the entire network has has gone offline. Um, and and the reason for that is like if every if like a large part of the network has gone offline, you want to like have a high incentive for people to get back online, and and this is why you sort of scale that that penalty. Um, so uh, you know the, the penalty basically scales with however many people are offline, and once you get past a third of the network being offline, it'll start scaling much more, um, because Ethereum sort of assumes you need two thirds of the network to agree on on the state of things to move forward. So if we have less than that, we're sort of stuck where um, we can move forward, but we don't have what we call finality. So you don't have a guarantee that you won't uh, reorg the chain you know, back to an arbitrary point. We need about two thirds of people to uh, to make a decision on like 
what is the deepest the network would reorg um, un unless it was uh, severely compromised. Um, and so, if you if you think about that, like the, the, the sort of high level thing that that like is incentivizing is we want to have failures that are decorrelated from each other as as much as possible. So like it's fine to have you know up to a third of the network you know going down. Um, and in practice, we've never had anywhere near that. I think you know like five-ish percent for like hours is is probably the worst case we've seen. But like you know the protocol can tolerate up to like a third and still move along. You know. To, to a large extent, um, but that means ideally you never want more than a third to go offline, and you know it, it would be better if like you get like much less than that, and when you know parts of the network go offline, they go offline at different times than other parts of the network. Um, and you know in practice, this means like the network sort of incentivizes you to not have like all the nodes on the same AWS region because if that one went offline, your penalty as like a staker you would lose way more money than like if you split your nodes in like even just two AWS regions um, where like, uh, you know, they wouldn't hopefully fail at the same time. But then, and then if you take this further, it's like, well, if, if you all have, if you have like this correlated risk on AWS, you know, maybe AWS shuts off your nodes uh, for whatever reason. And if more people are on AWS, um, then they'll get a harsher penalty. So that sort of forces you to move to like other places. Um, and, and this is kind of the, how the protocol is designed. It's like, can we, can we like push the the failure modes to be as decorrelated as possible, such that like when something bad happens, it affects as little of the network as as possible. Um, and so I think generally that's also how core devs try to approach it. Like, what are ways that we can make staking like approachable from as many different groups and in, in individuals? Um, and this is why we have like such a, a big focus on things like keeping the node requirements low and things like that. Um, and even, you know, the people often ask like why it's like 32 ETH that you need to stake and like why not 16 or like, you know, 64. Um, and this is basically based on bandwidth. So like the number of validators on the network sort of create, they each create some amount of messages that they need to send to everybody. And so if we had like 16 ETH instead of 32, you would need to send twice as many messages. And like 32 ETH is like roughly, you know, I believe it's like a 10 maybe 20 meg per second like bandwidth requirement so it's like accessible you know in in like a lot of places with a pretty reasonable internet connection um so it's like about finding the sweet spot between like how much capital should you have to put versus like what sort of you know technical equipment do you need because if the minimum stake was like one east but then you need a gig per second in bandwidth um you know you've created like another barrier to entry and i think this is generally like you know the, the sort of problem client teams try to optimize for with regards to like staking access is like, you know, what's the sweet spot of like, you know, low capital and like low hardware and low bandwidth requirements. And obviously, you know, price of ETH is, is volatile. So like the, the capital bit is, is the one that moves the most. Um, but I think that's, that's sort of what we pay attention to. Um, and similarly, when people talk about like the block limits, like why are blocks this big? It's basically the same thing. It's like, you know, the bigger the blocks are, the more bandwidth it takes to gossip them and the more storage it takes to store them. So you need to find this sweet spot of like, you know, blocks being big enough to, you know, keep fees low, but not so big that like, then nobody can run node and you, you need the centralization. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll pause here, but this is like generally just like how I think the protocol is designed, how we think about the, the problem and like why sort of there might be some like counterintuitive design choices in Ethereum that, that are very different from, from other blockchains. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Yeah, I appreciate that overview. There's so much knowledge in there, actually, that like it's kind of like the basics, but at the same time, like a lot of people, you know, kind of move on to the advanced stuff before they actually know the basics. So I think it's great to to go over all that stuff. Uh, in terms of the uh, ETH roadmap going forward, uh, what things are you the most excited about? I know we got Shanghai coming up here pretty soon, but beyond that, like, what would you say you're looking forward to the most in Ethereum? Yeah, so um, I guess yeah, I'll start from where we're at now and then sort of wander off in the future, but like um. The biggest thing we're working on right now is, like you said, Shanghai. So this uh, will bring uh, Beacon Chain withdrawals uh, to the network, which which is you know uh, a very anticipated feature. In case people don't know, so right now if you stake on the Beacon Chain, it's sort of a one-way operation. You can't actually withdraw your funds. Um, there's a bunch of like historical reasons why it was designed that way. Uh, and when we when we did the merge, uh, we wanted to keep it as simple as possible because it's already a pretty big change. Um, so we didn't add this withdrawal functionality, but now it was like number one priority to get it out uh, after the merge. Um, and we're we're pretty much you know finishing up on this. Um, this morning we agreed to like fork the first test nets towards the end of February. So like in the next you know month or two, like we'll start moving to like test nets and then main nets and and you know have have that out of the way. Um, the next big thing that we we've been working on already is um, what's called a uh, proto dank sharding or EIP4844. Um, and the idea there is to help make uh, layer twos more, uh, I guess, cheaper for users. Um, so layer twos uh, are, are sort of how Ethereum thinks about scaling to uh, more users. You know, like we were just talking about, you can't really scale the layer one too much if you want to maintain uh, like node decentralization. So layer twos are like these really interesting constructs which run sort of a separate Ethereum chain, run a bunch of transactions on it, and they'll only post either like compressed data or proofs of transactions back to layer one, um, and only have to like run the actual computations on layer one if there's like a suspected bug or, or fraud happening. Um, so that means you can kind of uh, lower the cost of transactions because you're, you're you're basically running all of, all of the transactions, quote unquote, off chain on the on the layer two chain itself, um, and only running like a small fraction of them um, on on L one if and when there's there's like an issue. Um, that said, though, because they post all these proofs and all of of this compressed data back on chain, this is still quite costly for users. So if you transact on layer two today, um, I think Optimism had a, had a Dune dashboard which is showing something like ninety five or so percent of the cost is actually posting your data back to layer one. Um, and, and 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 it sort of makes sense because you know this data on layer one needs to be downloaded by every node and then stored forever in the blockchain. Um, so the idea with EIP4844 is that we're going to create this new sort of data layer on Ethereum that's kind of temporary storage for layer twos. Um, so layer twos, when they post back this data on layer one, they don't actually need it to stay forever on chain. Um, they only need it to be there long enough so that if there was a bug or a fraud, somebody could like dispute it. And this is why I say when you withdraw from something like uh, Arbitrum or Optimism, you have to wait like a week for your funds. It's basically waiting for somebody to say like, you know, something went wrong here. And then assuming that doesn't happen, they give you your money back. Um, so effectively, these layer twos don't need access to that data for more than like, you know, a week. And you can imagine having it be longer than that, you know, for some historical archival purposes. Um, so EIP4844 is, is going to introduce this, this new data layer where you can store data where, for, I believe it's roughly two weeks, give or take, uh, on the network, and then pay a much lower fee than you would uh, by storing it forever on chain. 
Um, and so that's a big thing we're working on. Um, so it'll enable layer twos to like go from posting their data back to on Ethereum L1 uh, forever to posting it to this data layer, which will be more ephemeral um, and, and pass those cost savings on to those users. Um, and that hopefully will help us, you know, scale the amount of people who can use layer twos uh, in, in, in the near future. Um, so we don't have a timeline for that yet, but it, it should happen sometime this year. You know, uh, we're already working on it now that that's withdrawals is wrapping up. Um, beyond that, uh, I think there's a bunch of other sort of big kind of problems or, or, or areas that we're tackling. Um, on the proof of stake side, there's a few. So uh, the first is uh, this idea of uh, single slot finality. So right now on Ethereum, when you to wait for finality or like, you know, being sure that the chain is, is not going to reorganize the pass, you have to wait about 12 minutes. And it's kind of this binary thing where after 12 minutes, you know that like uh, it would take more than two thirds of the stake to like reorg the chain and we consider that safe. Um, but it's kind of weird that it's like this binary threshold at 12 minutes, right? It's like, why wouldn't you get like half that certainty at like six minutes? Um, and the idea with single slot finality is that it's to like, sort of apply a more gradual sort of finality threshold so that like, imagine, you know, you send a thousand dollar transaction, maybe after one block, you get like, you know, $50 million of economic like weight behind it. Um, you might be fine accepting that transaction, right? Um, but, you know, if you're sending a billion dollars on chain, maybe you still want to wait like, you know, 12 minutes, that's fine. Um, but I would provide like much better UX for the average user who obviously doesn't send a billion dollars on, on chain. Um, so that's one of them. The other big one uh, is around MEV. So this idea of proposer builder separation, which is something we've we've seen uh, sort of play out now outside of the protocol. Um, but basically, um, again, just to put a bit of context, the idea with MEV is that there's a lot of money to be made by choosing the right order of transactions in a block. Um, and for people who aren't familiar at all, you know, like the most obvious example here is imagine somebody's making a big trade on Uniswap. You know, you might want to buy the thing they're going to buy before them. When the price is low, then they're going to buy it, push the price up, and then you can sell right after them and, you know, collect an arbitrage profit. Um, this is like the most, I guess, common MEV example, but there's a whole kind of world of that. Um, so people, there's like this entire industry of people competing to build like the best most profitable blocks, right? Like the order transactions in a way that they can extract the most value from. Um, and when you think of like what validators or miners have done historically, it's a bit of like a quote unquote, like dumber process where they just have transactions lend their mempool. They'll usually sort them by the highest fee and like include that and, you know, propose the block. Um, so we've seen sort of this segregation of like this very specialized like uh, block building industry, which yeah, is optimizing for every possible sort of, you know, uh, like cent of value they can extract. And then we have these validators who like, we want to make sure they can keep a, a relatively low uh, hardware requirement and they'll have to run like these compute intensive algorithms to figure out which which is the best block they're going to build. But ideally, you also don't want them to be at like a huge disadvantage where like, you know, only like big centralized validators have access to like these, these uh, profitable blocks, but everybody else doesn't. Um, so the idea with proposer builder separation is you you know you make those two roles separate and you sort of create a marketplace between the two of them where like if I'm a validator and I'm about to propose a block then there's sort of an auction between different builders who will each like pay me for the right to like pr propose the block for me and and you know extract arbitrage profits. Um and today this happens outside of the protocol so we have this thing called MEV boost um where 
which is basically you can think of as this marketplace where validators can choose to run the software and this will connect them to a network of builders who can each propose blocks. Um, but the fact that this is outside of the core protocol sort of creates all these trust assumptions on you know that that like marketplace. So that's something that I think over time as we understand how the like this market structure developed, it makes sense to have more of this live inside of the protocol and just reduce the trust assumptions um, to make sure that like, you know, the, there's not something where like the, the, the dominant players in that marketplace can, can end up sort of either censoring Ethereum or extracting some um, like disproportionate amount of value. And so that's another exciting one. And, and then maybe a, a third one uh, that like I'm, I'm personally excited about is um, something we've been working on for a long time called uh, like stateless Ethereum. Um, and the idea there is that, uh, again, this comes back to like uh, node requirements. Um, Ethereum has this concept of a state where this is all of the accounts and all of the smart contracts on the network at a current time, right? So it's not even like the historical balances and whatnot, but it's like at this current block, you know, my address has X, your address has Y, this smart contract has this data, this code. Um, and this grows over time, obviously, like more people use Ethereum, there's new contracts that come in, there's new users that come in. Um, and it doesn't grow as fast as like the history of everything that's happened, but it's still growing sort of relatively fast. Um, and one future you can imagine is like, you know, it's going to be impossible for everyone to store this if it's too big. So maybe you sort of break it up in pieces and people only have to store a subset of it. And you can imagine a world where it's like you store a random subset of it. You can imagine a world where like when you run a node, you specify like, oh, these are my accounts. These are like the smart contracts I care about and like just store this. Um, and um, But that means that if, uh, if not everybody has like a full proof of this state, you need to have, when you make a transaction, you can't just like send uh, a, a transaction. You would also potentially have to send people like a proof of the actual state, which they can then verify. So, th because if they don't have a copy of your smart contract, say you know you're selling an NFT, they might not even know this NFT contract exists. So, you need to send them a proof that's like, hey, here's this NFT contract on Ethereum. I actually have this NFT, you know, at you know this storage slot in the contract and whatnot. Um, and sending those proofs over the network uh, is quite expensive. So, we've been working on just a a sort of database overhaul for Ethereum that would help make it easier to do that. And um, and the, basically the value there would be you could have more and more applications, but not force everybody to keep track of all of them and, and therefore grow the node requirements. Um, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll pause here, but like, I think, yeah, those are the three that I'm interested in. Just like, how do we make finality more progressive, come quicker? Uh, how do we just keep MEV from being like centralized and just a small number of, of providers and, and make sure that like all validators can can have access to it. And then how do we, you know, enable Ethereum to like keep scaling and keep having more applications, more users, um, without forcing every every node to store all of the state forever. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely super exciting, even just to think about how far Ethereum's come and yet how bright the future still is on the development side of things. And so obviously a lot to unpack there. But there's two things that really jump out at me. I, and the first being really love to get your take. Uh, on the current state of L2s. Because of course, L2s are going to play a very centric role uh, in the future of Ethereum. But if we look at where they are today, just like, you know, objectively assessing things, you know, optimistic still roll-ups roll still really don't have fraud proofs pushed live and the sequencers are still quite centralized. So 
where do you think we are in the L2 evolution timeline? And like, kind of like what, what comes next? Like, how do you think we get to these decentralized L2s? Yeah, I, I, I will agree with you 100% on that. Like, I do think uh, in terms of trust assumptions, like they are like much more trusted than L1s today. And people should know that. Like, you know, if you bridged Optimism, Arbitrum, uh, Starknet, like, and any other, like they, they all have like pretty significant trust assumptions and they're, they're working on lowering them. Um, and the two, so, so the two, the two things you mentioned are like, yeah, decentralized sequencing and, 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 and fraud proofs or, or fault proofs, how they like to call them now. Um, so I hear from L2 teams that the fraud proofs will be coming in like the next year or so. Um, I think we should hold them as a community accountable to that. Um, that's probably the single most important thing um, because it, it sort of allows you to, uh, it, it, it allows you to dispute something that happened on the chain, you know, if, uh, if something goes wrong and testing that mechanism is really important. Um, I think, you know, there's also other parts of centralization, like, for example, you know, like who can upgrade the smart contracts, like uh, if there is a new release, like who who is like the group that like you know says this is the new arbitrum contract this is the new optimism contract um and that might be you know that might be something that like different l2s choose to like have different stances on like you could imagine a world where like i don't know l21 says like we're as a company always going to upgrade these contracts you know we're sort of offering a product um but you know then there's full fraud proofs and whatnot like when you're using it right and this is kind of the model that like something like Uniswap takes, right? Like when Uniswap has like uh, went from V1 to V2 or V2 to V3, um, you know, they obviously put out this contract, uh, but they can't force people to like use it, right? Like the contract has to be better. And, you know, that is like a, a, an incentive to like use it. Like if it actually brings something, something new. So you could imagine like an L2 that like doesn't have fault proofs and then like publishes a new version with, with fault proofs. Um, they might sort of do that centrally, but, you know, provide a better product. And I think, you know, that's, that's potentially a reasonable approach. Um, but you could also imagine the opposite, right? Like you could imagine an L2, uh, which wants to have like a much more public governance process about that and like votes on like version upgrades and things like that. Um, and I think we'll see people experimenting in that, like optimism is experimenting with this dual governance structure um, of, you know, like having both token holders, but also some individuals vote and, and, and see how like, you can have an interplay there. Um, I think on the ZK side as well, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, they, so ZKs don't have like fault proofs basically, um, but what they do have is like uh, the, the provers uh, for, for, for the cryptographic proof that they post on chain. So like, you know, if it's one thing that like, you know, they post proofs of what happened on the ZK chain on L1, but if nobody can actually verify that like, the the software that is evaluating those proofs you know you have to trust them that there there's not like some backdoor malicious or not right like it could be a backdoor in a malicious case it could be a bug in the in the like uh, non-malicious case but you sort of have to trust them that like the code says what it does right and and that is something where like i think again like it's valuable to have the community put pressure towards like making that open source so that people can actually review um review the implementations um I think for decentralized sequencing, um, this is, I think this is something that's almost like good from, uh, so it's, it's good for a few reasons, right? Like it's good from, uh, uh, basically like a risk management standpoint for the L2 in that imagine if there's an L2 where like the sequencer is only run by like one company, um, 
and you know their infra goes down then the whole chain sort of stops and that's really bad right like so there is some amount of like resilience that you can get from like you know decentralized sequencing um but i think there as well it's worth you know there's definitely different flavors that like l2s might explore so for example you could imagine something like a token base you know almost like staking on ethereum right like you put up your tokens and you you get a spot as a sequencer for some amount of time or something like that uh, but you could imagine something different that's more like some sort of like committee or like multi-sig of like um okay like these are the six entities that like run a sequencer and you know like we think that they're good and and hopefully they don't go down um or even like some mix of that, right? Like you could imagine something where like not anybody can be a sequencer because you want like a high uh, a high technical requirement for it, uh, but like maybe governance votes on like, okay, who are like the top 10 sequencers or something like that, right? Um, so I think hopefully we'll see like some experimentation there. Um, but yeah, generally I, I agree that like, you know, it's, it's fair to demand like of L2s, like what, you know, if you're not trust us today, at the very least, like, what are your plans to do it? And then hold them accountable to that. Um, and I think one thing I am, though, very excited about is, like, that we have this, like, diverse set of teams trying different approaches. Um, so once upon a time, there was, like, this old Ethereum scaling roadmap where, like, all the scaling would come from the core protocol itself. Um, and this means, like, client devs and researchers would be the ones that have to, like, design and implement everything. And I think the fact that today, like, we see, you know, teams with such different approaches, like, already live and, and trying different things um, is, is actually really valuable. Like, you know, clearly, like, the client teams that exist on L1 today, like, couldn't have done, like, one of those things well. And now we see, you know, like, five, maybe 10 different approaches uh, to the problem. And um, I think that's really exciting. So I hope. Um, yeah, I, and I think in the next year, we'll see sort of which teams are actually, you know, walking the walk and, and like, like, yeah, like doing good on, on those promises to decentralize. Yeah, I strongly agree with your, your viewpoints there. And, you know, as you see Arbitrum and Optimism kind of like really garnering some uh, like user base as well as TVL and like, you know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is like, how can we encourage that? Like we push in the path of decentralization. Um, but the other question I really had, uh, when you were running through the, like what's to come was around like the scourge section of the roadmap. So, uh, you know, part of that is really based around how do we create like credibly neutral transaction inclusion? And I think a big part of that is democratizing MEV. And so one of the pieces that I saw on the roadmap was MEV burn, which is a really interesting opportunity. So kind of like love to get your take on like why that could help uh, achieve that goal. Um, and really, like one of the things I'm toying with is, you know, should MEV only flow to stakers and validators because like that's the, the extra incentive of participating in network security? So I think MEV burn is still a pretty contentious topic. Um, I'm not even sure. I oscillate between whether I think it's a good or bad idea, you know, depending on the day. Um, but I think, you know, the, the strongest case I can make for it is something like this, where like um, if... Like, I guess, you know, to, yeah, to start from the highest, like, the highest level thing is, like, should high MEV go to, like, the validator of a certain block, right? Like, you know, if if it just happens that somebody, like, you know, sold their punk for, like, one ETH instead of 100 ETH um, in this block, should, like, that 99 ETH arbitrage go to, like, you know, you as a validator just because you happen to be in that slot? Or should it be distributed, like, more broadly? Right. I think this is like the first question there. 
Um, and again, there's like a case for both sides, but assuming you think like, you know, it should be sort of distributed to some extent, but I think the next logical question is like, okay, so then should it go to just, you know, the validators that are staking right now, or should it potentially go to like all of the ETH holders, right, as, as a group, or sort of a mix of that? Um, and I think this is where MEV burn comes in. Um, and this, the idea with MEV burn is just like, you know, if, if you get the, the builders to sort of bid, you know, for, for high, uh, high like profit opportunities, they're going to bid a lot of money for that. And what do you do with that bid? Right. Like, do you send it straight to the validator? Do you burn part of it or, you know, burn all of it? And when you burn all of it, what you're effectively saying is you redistribute it to all the ETH holders, right? Because you're reducing the supply. Um, and um, I think that the, the thing that like, so, and, and, you know, maybe like the, the obvious argument there is like, you might think it's like more fair to like, uh, to burn it so that like, uh, you know, every, like it's just redistributed and it's not, it doesn't go to that single validator. Um, there's also some, uh, some like security properties that you get in that, like, if you, uh, if you have like really high MEV blocks, um, people might want to like reorg the chain, you know, like for example, like this punk example, um, you know, there's 99 ETH to be made, then like, should I maybe like not see your block and just, you know, fork you out and rebuild with that transaction in my block and, and then the next validator does that as well. And that creates like a really bad user experience, right? So like MEV burn is a disincentive to do that because you're sort of, you're not actually getting the 99 ETH, you're getting, you know, potentially nothing if it's all burnt or potentially just a small fraction of that. Um, and I think there's another uh, another thing that, that plays into it uh, that, you know, potentially makes me more in favor of MEV burn is um, the question of how much validators does Ethereum need? Um, so, like we were discussing, like at the, at the very beginning, each validator on the network had adds an overhead in terms of like bandwidth requirements to run another validator. So you could imagine a world where like if we have too many validators, um, then we might start to crowd out like validators with poor internet connections and drop them off. Um, and it's not clear that we need like this. You know, there's diminishing returns to like how much ETH should be securing the network, like. Uh, at some point, you know, the, the like incentives to attack sort of get unrealistically high and like the marginal validator doesn't, uh, doesn't add much value. And we already have this sort of assumption in the protocol where like we reduce validator rewards based on how many validators there are. So there's already this, this curve of issuance, you know, that like tries to attract people if not enough people are staking and, you know, incentivizes them less if more people are going. And the question is like, you know, should potentially that curve like go negative or something like that or you know there's just a fixed cap or something there and i think if that was the direction that we wanted to go and that direction could potentially let us explore things like lowering the minimum stake because you could imagine like you know if bandwidth gets better right like in in the next five ten years or something um then like okay say we need 10 to 20 megs today with the current stake you know maybe in 10 years like we can double this to 20 to 40 megs and it's like the same you know quote unquote technical requirement. Um, so, you, and we have to stake to, to, to 16 or something like that. But if we've like doubled or quadrupled the number of validators, then we're sort of in the same spot. So you can make an argument that there's like a, a right number of validators to have. If you believe that, then um, I think MEV burn makes much more sense because you're telling people, you're sort of gatekeeping people from being validators, right? And then saying like, look, you know, 
even if you're not a validator, as an ETH holder, you can receive the MEV profit that the chain generates. That sort of reduces the incentive to give to be a validator, and you know, and and you can get like you know, quote unquote, most of the rewards from being just an ETH holder. Um, that I don't know. That 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 makes more sense to me. Um, but yeah, I I, I don't think it's like a, a simple question. Um, much more complex than like the 1559 burn. So um, the 1559 burn was very different in that like. The reason we burn the fee in 1559 is just so miners don't like mess with it and fill blocks with with spam transactions. And this is like a clear, like it just distorts the entire like market signal if we don't burn it. And so there was like a clear rationale for it. It's it's really hard to argue. It's like the whole mechanism sort of falls apart in a pretty clear way if, if you don't burn it. Um, Whereas this, I think it's like a much more nuanced answer. Like there's definitely a strong case to be made for it. Um, but I think there's people who would argue like that, you know, like maybe like yeah you are the validator of that block you're lucky you like got the arbitrage opportunity and like you know you produce that block therefore you should keep those fees um and and i don't think it's an unreasonable position either um but yeah i i think we'll talk a lot about that in the next uh couple of years for sure yeah this is one of my favorite topics i know me and the rest of the guys on the research team are always talking about it so it was actually really interesting to get your thoughts because you, you raised a couple there that we hadn't discussed but uh tim you've already been so generous with your time so and i know you're a super busy and highly sought after guy so do you want to just share with the audience where they can find you learn more about you know what you do and and then we can call it so twitter's the best place uh i'm at tim Baco there um, my DMs are open. So if uh, you want to chat, uh, you can either tweet at me or DM me there. Um, yeah, I've also been using Farcaster as well uh, recently. So uh, at Timbeko there as well. Um, yeah, those are probably the two best places. Nice. Well, thanks so much for coming on. We'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great.